Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We're continuing our study in the book of Ephesians, and we are going to be starting chapter 3 today. To begin our thoughts on this passage, I want to show you a picture. Go ahead, Gavin. That was your cue, Gavin. Excellent. This, this work of art is called Christ Pantocrator. It depicts Jesus as the Almighty, which is the translation of the word Pantocrator. It is inspired by verses like Revelation 1.8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Pantocrator. This particular piece of art is in the Hagia Sophia, which is a famous uh, cathedral in Istanbul, Turkey. But I wanted to show you this because this work of art is not actually a painting. Now, I know it's a little hard for you guys to see from where you are, but if you go online later and look this up, you will be able to see more clearly that this is not a painting but a mosaic. And I think that adds to the beauty of this particular piece of art. That from a distance, especially the distance you all are that, we see the unified beauty of this work of art. But if you zoomed in, you would see that this depiction of Jesus is made of innumerable small cubes of gold, silver, glass, marble, and other material. And like many times when we go and we view art, there is both beauty to be found in the details and in the unified whole. That we are almost struck with another level of beauty when we know that there are thousands upon thousands of tiny cubes that make up that picture of Jesus. I want to begin here before we jump into the text, because central to our text this morning is thinking of the church like a mosaic, and that there is beauty, beauty to be found in the unified whole, that when you step back and you view the universal church across countries and across history, you see a beautiful picture But also when you zoom in to the church, you see the innumerable tiny cubes that make up the church. And when all of us tiny cubes, that's right, one of the takeaways from this is you are a tiny cube. When we see us all together in this beautiful picture of unity and diversity, we see the true beauty of what Jesus did in saving his people. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 3 as we look at this mystery of God's church. Let's begin by looking at verses 1 and 2. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles... Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. One interesting thing 
about these first two verses, and I think that the ESV captures it well, is you see that line in between verses 1 and 2. Now, many scholars believe that Paul was going to offer a prayer here, another prayer for the Ephesians, but that he got sidetracked or wanted to talk more about what he had just said, and so he writes verses, two, verses 3 through 13. So in one sense, we have a holy parentheses here in these verses. And we see this, and we will see this next week, because verse 14 begins again for this reason, and he has a prayer. But we need to understand what would take Paul off track. And notice in verse 1, he calls himself a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. As we've seen before, Paul specifically takes time to address Gentile believers. And this identification is enough for him to take the next 10 verses to further explain that identity and the implications of that identity before he then goes back to his original plan of giving them another prayer. So let's think through what is going on here. First, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. The imprisonment that Paul is probably referring to is one that we just studied at the end of the book of Acts. This is probably his arrest that began in Jerusalem and eventually brought him to Rome. That is the most likely time period for calling himself a prisoner. This is bolstered by the fact that he says that he is a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. That this imprisonment, as we saw at the end of the book of Acts, came about because of his preaching to Gentiles. But it also is calling attention to the fact that God has called him to the Gentiles in a special way. We see this in verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul was assigned by God to preach the grace of God to the Gentiles And that task itself was a demonstration of the grace of God to Paul. As one author writes about this verse, to make this gospel known is Paul's special privilege. And I want to pause there to meditate on that idea. That Paul would think of his missionary call to the Gentiles as a gift of God's grace. It's especially striking when we remember all that Paul had to endure as a missionary. This is the same Paul who was imprisoned, beaten, persecuted, and shipwrecked. And even in the midst of all of that, he could call his assignment to preach Jesus an act of grace. And when we truly understand that, I think it's humbling to us who follow in his footsteps. Maybe we don't follow Paul to the frontiers of this world, but we follow him 
generally in also being proclaimers of the good news of Jesus. And if he could say the task of sharing Jesus was a gift of God's grace, how much more can we? But it's this idea of him preaching the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles that acts as a lens through which we will view what follows in that passage. Because what we see next in verses 3 to 6 is Paul giving more understanding to the gospel going to the Gentiles. So let's look at verses 3 through 6. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Throughout this part of the passage, Paul is going to use the term mystery to describe the gospel. And that may throw you for a little bit. Don't worry, we're going to talk about why he would do that. Now, he will ultimately define the mystery in verse 6, so... There is an answer, don't worry, it's coming. But a definition first, mystery in the New Testament is not like the way we use it as like murder mystery. So Scooby-Doo, Agatha Christie, just push that to the side. Those are great things, but they're not what's being talked about here. It is used to talk about something that was unknown, but has now been made known. Something that is hidden that has now been revealed. And we see that Paul learned this mystery by revelation. And many people see this as a reference to Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. For example, in Paul's testimony in Acts chapter 26, he says this, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Jesus said to him in that Damascus moment, he told, them, told Paul from the beginning that he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now the little note where he says, as I have written briefly, probably refers to the earlier parts of this book. But we also see here as in understanding this mystery is that this mystery is the mystery of Christ. And we see that at the end of verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. The good news that has been revealed is good news about Jesus. And we see this continued in verse 5. This message of Jesus, which was not made known to the sons of man in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Again, we can understand the terms apostles and prophets here to refer to those through whom God spoke and that they did so by the Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, empowered the apostles and prophets to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And it's at this point where Paul explicitly defines what he has been leading up to in these last verses. Verse 6. This mystery, 
is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery that has been revealed is that through faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection through the gospel, Gentiles are saved just like Jews. In some ways, this is a continuation of what we saw last week in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. The gospel is the great equalizer. That Gentile Christians are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise, just as much as Jewish Christians. These descriptions also echo earlier parts of the book of Ephesians. As fellow heirs, Gentile Christians have the same hope of eternal life that Jewish Christians have, taking us back to chapter 1, talking about the inheritance we have in Christ. As members of the same body, Gentile Christians are united with Jewish believers into one people of God as they are united to Jesus, taking us back to chapter 2 and chapter 1. Now, with the phrase partakers of the promise, there is some debate as to what this is exactly in view. It could be viewed as the promise of salvation, which in chapter 2, verse 12, is called the covenants of promise, or as a reference to the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is called the promised Holy Spirit in chapter 1. Either way you take it, there is truth. Either way we see that Jew and Gentile those separated people have the same salvation and the same Holy Spirit as their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. Again, a distinction that separated the world from each other. Are both saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians are both given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we see here again, which is a theme of this book, that all believers are united to each other. We all have the same salvation and enjoy the same salvation blessings. The beauty of the gospel that has been revealed is that all people can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And after spending this time understanding the gospel message, the mystery of the gospel, Paul then turns to focus on his commission, his call to preach to the Gentiles. And we see that in verses 7 to 13. Let's begin by looking at verses 7 to 10. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. 
so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. First, we see that Paul was made a gospel minister according to the gift of God's grace by the working of his power. Paul sees his call as a missionary as a gift of grace, which was mentioned earlier, but we have an added wrinkle here that this was done through the power of God. God's power, which we looked at in great detail in Ephesians 1, verses 19 to 23, is the same power that saved a religious persecutor and that empowers every day of his work as a preacher of the gospel. One of the parts we need to understand about Paul's life it was that it was the only the power of God that could transform him from who he was to who he became. And Paul continues to speak to this calling with both humility and joy. Paul here calls himself the very least of all the saints. And that fits within Paul's understanding of himself. We see great humility here. Someone who wrote so many books of the Bible, who was the pioneer missionary to take the gospel to places it had never been. He said, I'm the very least of all the saints. We see this in a few ways in his other writings. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls himself the least of the apostles because he was the last one to see the risen Jesus. And he also said this because of his time as a persecutor of the church. It also fits of what Paul says of himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he calls himself the worst of sinners. This description is not to give a pity party to Paul, but it is to underscore that he did not earn this job, but that God gave him this calling because of grace. And this grace was given so that he could preach God's grace to the Gentiles. And Paul utilizes two pictures of the gospel here that he has already used. He is to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is a phrase we've seen before that has been used to describe God's grace, his mercy, and eternal life. And we see again here the great generosity that God shows us in our salvation. And we, like Paul, preach the good news of grace, mercy, and eternal life. Secondly, echoing similar language from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul's mission is to bring light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul's message is not his own. Paul's job is to reveal what God's plan was to save sinful people. Paul's job is to show unbelievers that the God who created the universe sent his son Jesus to die and rise again so that all who repent of their sin and place their trust in him will be forgiven of their sins, reconciled to God, and have the hope of eternal life. And then it's in verse 10 where Paul speaks about the purpose or the result of his ministry. 
And I want you to pay particular attention to this verse because I think it's a different way than we normally think about the purpose of a missionary. Look at verse 10 with me. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. One of the purposes of God that we need to understand as we understand our salvation in Christ is that God has saved us, both Jew and Gentile. He has saved all people to display his manifold wisdom to the powers of this universe. God has saved the church so that we as the church might display to all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places the greatness and glory of God. This is why I began with the picture of the Jesus mosaic. Just as we admire the beauty of the mosaic, so in the church, the universe sees the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The diverse unity of the church is also a victory cry to any power that might be hostile to God. Oftentimes, when the word rulers and authorities is used, it, is, it can be used to refer to those powers who are at odds with God, who are enemies of God. And I want you to understand the church across the world and throughout history is a message to any power that this world has, both in the physical world and in the spiritual world. That it is a cry of beauty to the universe and that it is a cry of victory to those who would reject the rule of God. The church across the world and throughout history, the purpose of that is to display the beauty of God's grace to the universe. Now in this final part of the passage, Paul takes what he has just said and then applies it to the everyday lives of the Ephesians and by extension us. Let's look at verses 11 to 13. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul begins this part of the passage by telling them that all of this has gone on according to the eternal purpose and in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul comes back to a truth that has run throughout this book, that God's saving sinners was done according to his plan that was made since eternity past. We are reminded of what Paul has said in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Nothing happens outside of the sovereignty of God. And we need to understand that God's plan of salvation happened according to his eternal purpose. We also see that God's plan of salvation is realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is only through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus that sinners are saved and reconciled to God. And Paul continues in the next verse that through this salvation in Christ, quote, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. First of all, we must see that for us to receive the benefits of Christ's work, we must have faith in him. We are saved through faith in Jesus. But he also uses a word here that he's used before. That it is through faith that we have access. Now, as I talked about last week, and if you want to go back and listen to that sermon, you can hear a little more on this. But when we talk about having access to God, I think there are two primary ways in which we understand this. One, that when we have access to God, it is a relationship word. That through Jesus Christ, I am able to be in relationship with the God of the universe. And one of the primary benefits of that, and I think the second aspect by which we should view this word access, is that because of that relationship, primarily we have access through prayer to the Father. Through faith in Jesus, we have bold and confident access to God. About this, one author writes, Paul has gone out of his way to make this declaration of assurance as strong as possible for his readers. They need to know that this, that this privileged and certain access to the Father is theirs. And this leads to the final verse of this passage today, which speaks to the application of this text as a whole, but also specifically as an application of this idea of the confident access we have to the Father. The result of this access to God, both in relationship and in prayer, is that the Ephesians are not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. Paul comes back to the imprisonment he mentioned at the beginning of the text. Apparently, his imprisonment had caused fear and worry and all sorts of emotion in the hearts of of the Ephesians. Take a moment to put yourself in their shoes. One of their spiritual leaders is under Roman arrest. It reminds us that the world of the early church and in other parts of the world today was and is much more dangerous than our experience. Try to imagine if one of the leaders in our church was thrown into prison. You can imagine the toll that it would take on our congregation. But because 
We have been saved by Jesus and have bold access to the Father. We do not have to fear and we can joyfully endure. In fact, Paul says at the very end of that verse that his suffering is your glory. Now, while this phrase can be difficult to understand, I think the best understanding is that Paul's ministry, even though it includes regular suffering, is the means by which the Ephesians will see the ultimate glory of eternal life. They can endure. They do not have to lose heart because Paul preached Jesus to them. And so their future in glory in heaven will be with God forever. The gospel being preached to the Gentiles will include suffering for Jesus. But it leads to glory for those who hear and believe. A couple thoughts as we conclude this morning. Number one, as we look at how Paul understood his call as a missionary, we need to see the ways in which we are like Paul, missionaries to our world. God may not be calling you to the frontiers of our world today. But you share his call to preach the gospel in your world and to view it, like Paul, as a demonstration of God's grace to you. I think that that idea has the power to really transform how we view our mission to our world. Oftentimes, we think of our call to share Jesus with others. It either brings us fear, or we view it as a duty that we need to grit our teeth through. But do we view it as a demonstration of the grace of God? We, like Paul, proclaim the salvation plan of God for all people. We proclaim the riches of Christ to all who believe. Secondly, the gospel unites us as fellow believers. This is a theme we saw last week, but it continues on in chapter 3. The fact that the gospel makes Gentile believers fellow heirs with Jewish believers is a truth with many applications. The gospel is the great equalizer. Therefore, there are not levels of Christians. The gospel is for all nations, all people, without distinction. This is a reason to be involved in overseas missions and even missions to different subcultures that exist in our own country. This is also the fuel for the various commands in the second half of the book. If you don't view your brother or sister in Christ as a fellow heir, then you won't treat them the way that Jesus commanded them in this book. It is only when we truly view each other as saved with the same gospel 
that we will treat them with the love and godliness that God commands. We need to see the diverse and unified church as the beautiful mosaic that it is. Finally, point three. Through Jesus, we live lives of boldness, even in suffering. We can endure hardship like Paul did, because we are saved by Jesus. As believers in Jesus, we have the guaranteed hope of eternal life. We can also endure hardship because in that hardship, others are hearing about Jesus and will themselves experience the glory of heaven. Sometimes we are able to endure hardship because it is through that hardship that others hear about Jesus and are saved. This is part of having an eternal perspective on our lives, especially of our suffering. We do not lose heart because God is using each and every one of us to save sinners from all nations. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us today that we would truly view the church across the world and throughout history as the beautiful mosaic that it is. And that we would understand our part in making disciples of all nations to be a gift of your grace. And that we would not lose heart when we suffer. Because even when we experience hardship, you are using that for the good of others and the spread of your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.